You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If last week's double portion of Tazria Mitzora, with its detailed laws of Tuma Vitahara, ritual purity and impurity, felt somewhat arcane or esoteric for us denizens of a post-temple period, this week's double portion of Achrimos Kedoshim feels relatively familiar and accessible. One of the most familiar elements, maybe even foundational in the collective religious consciousness of students of Torah from the earliest years of schooling, are the twin concepts of Mishpatim and Chukim. Introduced as a pair for the very first time here in Sefer Vayikra, as a prelude to the Parsha of Arayot, the forbidden sexual relations enumerated at the close of Akremot, the Arayot and Mishpatim and Chukim serve as a kind of fulcrum and pivot point between both Torah portions, connecting the Kedusha of Akremot, the Kedusha of Temple and Sacrifice and Offering and Holiness of a Bain Adam Lamakom nature, of a man-to-God nature, with the Kedusha found in Parshas Kedoshim, that is begun with the exhortation of Kedoshim Kiyu, Be ye holy, for God your Lord is holy. And most of those mitzvot in Parshas Kedoshim are actually extensions or derivisions of laws found already in Parshat Mishpatim way back in Sefer Shmot of the general category of Bain Adam Lechavero, mitzvot between man and his fellow man. Let me read to you Vayikra chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, to set the stage. Kemasa Eretz Mitzrayim asher yeshavtem ba lo sa'asu, uchemasa Eretz Kanan asher ani mevi eschem shama lo sa'asu, uvichukoseyem lo se'lechu. Es mishpatai ta'asu, veschukosei tishmeru lalechetz bahem, ani adonoi eloheichem. Do not perform the practice of the land of Egypt in which you dwelled, and do not perform the practice of the land of Canaan, to which I bring you, and do not follow in their traditions. That's the first reference to Chukim, Uvichukosehem Loselechu. Continuing, carry out my laws and safeguard my decrees to follow them. I am the Lord your God. Unfortunately, translations don't help much in trying to tease out the semantic senses or salient differences between Mishpatim and Chukim. Alternately, we get law and judgment for mishpatim and decree and ordinances for chukim. These terms, they tend to, I think, obscure rather than enlighten. And I suggest that for the meantime, at least as a kind of placeholder, to adopt the definitions of Rav Sadyagon, the great Jewish medieval philosopher, who says that mishpatim are rational commandments, sichliot, they come from reason, or reason can understand them, reason can apprehend them. By contrast, the Chukim are revealed laws, shimiot, laws that had they not been legislated by God, human reason alone would not dictate that they should be enacted. They are shimiot, they come from the reason and authority of God. We hear God's voice at Sinai, and that's why we obey these laws. They're revealed, they're not rational. Now when we turn to the Talmud, we get some examples, specific instances and cases that flesh out this concept, these twin concepts of Mishpatim and Chukim. In the Gemara in, so- in, in Yoma, Daf Samach Set Zayin Amidbet, Avodah Zarah, Gilui Arayos, Idolatry, Immorality, Sexual Immorality, Shvichas Damim, Murder, Gezel, Robbery, Birkat Hashem are all, blasphemy are all listed in Mishpatim, whereas the Chukim 
include shatnes, a mixture of wool and linen, chazir, eating swine, taras ha the purification of the mitzora, which we read about in last week's parsha, the seir hamishtaleach, the he goat that's sent out to Azalzel to the wilderness to be thrown off a cliff, which we read in our own parsha here at the beginning of Achremos. That's how the laws are categorized in the Talmud. Interestingly, in arguably the earlier source, the Sifra, the Torah Kohanim, the Midrash Halacha on the book of Leviticus, Gila Arayos, forbidden sexual relations, drops out of the Mishpatim list, and in fact, in a later segment is suggested that it is more akin to a Chok, that it is more similar to one of the Chukim. Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah has his own codification. He seems to challenge himself or contradict himself when he lists Mishpatim and Chukim in Shmona Prakim in the commentary on Avot. And of course, there are very learned discourses lent to this solution of these problems, these intertextual problems. And we do know, if we remember our Socrates and our Plato, that examples and specific cases are helpful, but they're never as illustrative, they're never as decisive as a definition. And when we turn to the Talmud for an operating principle or some kind of definition, we get a phrase that defines the Mishpatim that itself is subject to scrutiny and disagreement. The phrase is Mishpatim, these are the laws, Dvarim she'ilmale lo nichtavu dinhu kasvu. They are laws and words and teachings that had they not been legislated, it would be appropriate that they be legislated. Dinhu is often in, seen as an example of svara, of reason, of human deduction or induction or human inference. So this phrase can really be read in one of two ways. In what I'd like to suggest is a stronger version and a weaker version of this phrase or this definition. The stronger version of Mishpatim says that human reason is the ground and the authority for these Mishpatim. That human reason, unaided human reason, even without the aid of divine revelation, we would know that murder and robbery are wrong, are morally wrong, are absolutely forbidden. Proponents of this stronger version in the Jewish tradition include the late lamented and revered Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Haaretzion in the Gush, whose yard site we just commemorated last week, so it's really appropriate to be able to invoke his wisdom and his Torah in the context of, of this week's Parsha. A, a modern living exemplar and champion of this tradition, which is often seen as the Jewish version of the natural law tradition, is Rabbi Professor David Novak of the University of Toronto. And both of these thinkers see the Jewish tradition around rational law of the Sichliot, around Mishpatim, as perhaps extensions of the natural law tradition in the broader philosophical world, stretching back to the Stoics and experiencing a kind of renaissance today in Catholic intellectual thought. And a wonderful expression of this tradition in thought is offered by the Catholic philosopher Jay Budzuski, who is a very articulate and accessible writer. Many he often critiques the more academic uh, proponents of natural law theory in Catholic circles. He has a more homespun 
but still rigorous approach. He's got this wonderful book called What We Can't Not Know. What We Can't Not Know. In other words, the laws of reason that are written on the heart, as it were, in this natural law tradition. We all, all human beings, regardless of culture, tradition, religious affiliation, all must accept these laws written on the heart. And he quotes as an epigram to this book, What We Can't Not Know, uh, a line from the great George MacDonald, that Scottish fantasy writer who was an inspiration, of course, for C.S. Lewis. The mind of man is the product of live law. It thinks by law. It dwells in the midst of law. It gathers from law its growth. With law, therefore, can it alone work to any result. And that is, in a word, the, the natural law tradition and its expression in, in Jewish tradition by thinkers like Rev Lichtenstein and Professor Novak, the Mishpatim es Sichliot. The softer version or the weaker version of this approach says, not so fast. Don't read these words of Din Hushi Kassel as if human unaided reason would dictate and legislate the law in any absolute or moral way. But no, it's a common consensus. It's an agreement with amongst human beings that there's a practical utilitarian value. There's it's proper and fitting. It's proper and fitting that we serve a necessary function in society by legislating laws against murder, laws against robbery and theft. And so this position does not adopt a more robust line of thought and suggests that mitzvot sichliot are not rationally binding in any absolute or objective sense, but they are simply for utilitarian or or functional purposes, a useful thing for society. And modern champions of this position include the late Professor Marvin Fox, and may he live and be well, Rabbi J. David Bleich. Now, a corollary of this question, one that has, I think, great pedagogical significance in thinking about these different lists that we've seen, that we've referred to, and in acknowledging this debate between the more robust and the stronger version of rational commandments versus the more modest version, the more utilitarian version. My friend and the visionary founder of the Jewish Learning Initiative on campus, the JLIC, Rabbi Menachem Schrader, in an article in Tradition just a couple of years ago, entitled, What is a Chok? poses a very thought-provoking question. Are the contents and the instances, in other words, the specific examples of Mishpatim and Chukim, are they unchanging and eternal? Do they belong in one box forever, transcending time, content, and culture? Or, alternatively, can we suggest that the categories, while both still absolutely binding, Mishpatim and Chukim, not for a minute would we say that they're not equally binding, but in understanding these categories, or in seeing which mitzvot belong into which category, maybe they're more contextually understood, such that a command belonging in the one category, in one generation, may belong to the other category at a different time. And here he concludes his essay with a lot of experience and a lot of, of shimush, as it were, real exposure to life as it's lived. As many in the field of Jewish education know, there are mitzvot that for many generations were considered obvious mishpatim, that the current generation of younger people see as not explainable, 
and even reprehensible. Regardless of why this has happened, it is clearly the case. To those who do not understand these commandments, they are chukim. It is possible one day everything will change and these mitzvot will once again be understood. For the meantime, let us accept the new generation's perspective as genuine and allow them to not understand what they do not understand in any case. The mitzvot in the Torah do not change, but our understanding or lack of understanding of them does. We can only hope that matters that were formerly understood as rational and logical, but today seem enigmatic and chok-like, will still be accepted as the divine will to which we all, young and old, commit ourselves to as commanded beings. And here, Rabbi Schrader suggests a pretty radical thought that these categories can be fungible and can be fluid, and it doesn't matter how we understand them as long as we see them as binding. But for pedagogical purposes, we can honor those who see what we understood as a mishpat, as a rational, to be a chok. And I thought for a moment, how radical is this position? Does it have any precedent in Jewish thought? And in fact, it really does. There's a wonderful source in the great teaching of the Piazetzner Rebbe, the holy martyr of Warsaw, Rav Kalman Kolonima Shapiro, in his Chovas Atamidim, where he says that a young child whose intelligence is as yet undeveloped understands what he wants to kiss his father with his lips. He knows that. The fact that he would be unable intellectually to articulate the reason does not make the kiss and its meaning any less clear or less known. When a Jew yearns to perform a mitzvah and passionately connects himself to God with a faith that is strong and certain, this mitzvah is a mishpat for him because of its clarity and sureness. A mitzvah that does not move him in the least, either intellectually or emotionally, that is called a chukah. And the Piazetzner says it explicitly, that these terms are fungible. Mishpatim and chukim depend on where you personally are at. Do you see it as a mishpat? Does it speak to you? Does it articulate a compelling reason to you? Does it speak to your heart? Does it speak to your mind? If it doesn't, it's a chok. You still must obey it, but it is a chok. And just in conclusion, I want to suggest and champion this latter thought because I think not only does it work on the level of the individual worshiper that he should seek to find, as Rabbi Shapira suggests, a way to make the chok into a mishpat, to pedagogically convert the chok that is not understood into a mishpat, because you'll understand it more as a devoted individual, your own piety, your own devotion. But there's a second, more practical reason why it's important to convert the chok into a mishpat. If we're going to be able to discuss in our world around us, in a world of multiplicity, in a world of plurality, if we're going to be able to discuss our deepest religious commitments, we have to be able to include public reason and a, a form of rationality that can be understood and can be debated and can be discussed. If we close everything down to a chok, then we'll only be speaking to ourselves. And as the Rambam concludes in the Sefer Avodah, in his Mishnah Torah, that David, King David, was assaulted by the skeptics that we need to obey these laws. They, I thirst and I pine for these laws and I worship God and I challenge those skeptics. And that's how I will reach heaven. And I want to suggest today, that's how we might make a better earth as well. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.